0: This morning we'll look at 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a. We're continuing on to talk about stewards of sacred trust. This morning we're talking about being stewards of God's flock. better title would really be shepherds of God's flock, but then it just kind of breaks the flow up. 1 Peter 5. The apostle writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversights, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that He gives us. Father help the elders and also the congregation to see the responsibility that the elders have. And Father, help the congregation to see the responsibility that they have towards their leaders. Father, we ask You to continue to build up this church based on the instruction provided in Your Word. All for the glory and honor of Your name. Amen. You may be seated. More than one person has pointed out, quite accurately, I believe, that Matthew 7.1 has replaced John 3.16 as the most quoted and alluded to text in all of Scripture. People quote uh, Matthew 7.1, but they don't know it's Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7.1 is do not judge or simply judge not." Now, unfortunately, that text, and really it's just half a verse, is taken out of context and it's quoted in an absolute sense. In other words, when people say, do not judge, they apply that absolutely, meaning there's no context whatsoever in which people are to judge. But that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus was talking, if you continue to read on in the passage, about a particular kind of judging. Specifically, he was talking about hypocritical judging. He was talking about people who like to walk around saying, "Uh, excuse me, brother, excuse me, sister, I noticed that there is a speck of sin in your eye. Let me help you with that. When all along, there's a huge plank in that person's eye, but you overlook that. But if we're honest, it's a lot easier to see that tiny little speck in our brother or sister's eye, than it is to see the huge plank in our own eye. But that's the kind of judgment that Jesus was forbidding. Um, There is a place for appropriate judging. In John 7, 24, Jesus said, "...do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with righteous judgments." So there is a proper kind of judgment. But even here, we have to be very careful. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gives us some instructions on judgments, And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians five twelve and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, those outside the body of Christ, outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So, we are called to judge those within the body of Christ, but we are not to judge those outside the body of Christ. God says very clearly, I will judge them, you leave them to me. So, when we talk about judging, we have to be very discerning here about who it's our responsibility to judge. We are to judge within the body of Christ. Now, among Christians, I hear a lot of talk about God judging America. Have you heard that? God judging America. Maybe you've even said that. God is judging America. Some of you are nodding. I won't point you out. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think there's plenty for America to be judged for. Um, Honestly, there's plenty for any nation to be judged. But there is a more fundamental principle involving judgment that often gets overlooked. And that's the principle found in 1 Peter four seventeen, Just prior to our passage, where Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There's the principle. When God judges, you know where he begins? He begins with the church. And then, he moves out from the church and he judges those outside the church. So, judgment begins at the household of God. And Peter goes on to say, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? But even in relationship to God's judgment in the church, once again, we have to be very careful. (laughs) You see how I have to keep qualifying judgment? We have to be very careful here. Because we can often assume that God is judging someone even in the church when in fact He may not be judging them at all we might be thinking that a person is going through a hard time because God is really angry with them, when in fact, they may be going through a hard time because God's pleasure is resting upon them. Now notice the wider context of 1 Peter 4. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, As though something strange were happening to you. And that's so important. Because sometimes when we do suffer, we do think it's strange. Why is this happening? This is so strange. This is so unusual. There's nothing strange about it. It's part of life. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Isn't that fascinating? Sometimes when you go through a difficulty, you should be glad and rejoice. It's happening so that you can share in the glory of God. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know that sometimes Christians go through difficulties because God's blessing, spirit, and glory is resting upon them. Isn't that a surprise? Remember Job? Job was righteous, blameless. And because of that, he went through a difficulty. Did his friends understand that? Nope, they didn't understand at all. They kept saying, what have you done, Joseph? There must be some kind of sin in your life. You need to repent. You must really be a wicked guy. Look at all the difficulty you're going through. They didn't understand at all. Job was going through a hard time because God's glory was resting upon him. So we have to be very careful here. We don't see the hidden counsel of God. Yes, maybe a person's going through a terrible time. But why are they going through a terrible time? Maybe God is disciplining them. Maybe God is blessing them. You have to be very careful. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Everybody will suffer. Paul or Peter here is saying, just suffer for the sake of Christ, not because you're a murderer, thief, or evildoer. So why are we suffering is the question. Why are we being judged is the question. Now you might be wondering, uh, in a passage that deals with elders and the congregation, why do we have an introduction on suffering and judgment? Because that is the context of our passage. First Peter five, 1 Peter 5.1 The ESV begins this way. So, I exhort the elders among you. I know the NIV begins, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. And I know other translations like the King James Version and the NASB just begin, I exhort the elders among you. This little word, so, is very important, or therefore. It is part of the original text, even though other translations leave it out. So, Peter is beginning his passage, so, or therefore, I exhort the elders. And whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? (laughs) Very good. And it is there to take us back in the passage to the context. So, when Peter begins, therefore, we say, therefore what? And most commentators agree that it's a result of verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Now, verse 17, this whole concept of judgment beginning at the household of God, is from Ezekiel 9.6. So, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn back to Ezekiel. And to help me, I always say Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Yeah, you can continue on, <laughs> but we're stopping at Ezekiel. Now the old to- uh, the Old Testament concept that Peter is using here uh, comes from Ezekiel nine six. But I want to give you a little context. Ezekiel eight has to do with terrible abominations in the temple of God. In our context, we would say the church. And what was happening is idols were set up in the house of God, the temple. So God's people are coming to church, they're coming to the temple, and instead of worshiping Yahweh, the true and living God, they were bowing down before the idols that were set up in the temple. And we see this in Ezekiel 8, verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw. And there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all idols of the household of God. So, God sees this idolatry, this abominable idolatry that's taking place in His house and He is going to bring judgment on His house. Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then He cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold... Six men came from the direction of the upper gates, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen and a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had a writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. But touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary, or begin at my house. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Three quick observations. Uh, The land and the city will be judged as well. We see that in verse 9. Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. So it's not just the temple, but the land and the city. But judgment begins in the house of God and then it goes out from there. So God will judge the land. But it begins at the house of God. And did you notice what verse 6 said? So they began with the elders. God began with the leaders of His temple. That is the context of Peter's statement, judgment begins at the household of God. And notice what he said in verse 17. For it is Time, not it's going to come about later, it is time, Peter says, writing to these believers, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if you're a Jew, and you understand the context of this statement, and specifically if you're an elder in the church, and you hear Peter say it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, you immediately sober up And you say, what do I have to do to be ready for the judgment of God? That's the context. It's a very serious context. So Peter is basically saying, because of this judgment that is coming, I exhort you elders and I instruct you elders so that you can be prepared. When judgment begins, it's the house of God. So, how can the elders, especially, be prepared for judgments? And Peter gives a number of principles. Number one, by clinging to the grace of God. By clinging to the grace of God. Very interesting how Peter presents himself. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He could have said, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I exhort you elders what to do. He doesn't do that. Why does why does he basically say, I'm coming alongside you? It's like this, I exhort you as a fellow elder. I'm an elder too. Why does he do that? Because he says, you know what? I'm not immune to judgment. I exhort you as a fellow elder. I'm right here with you. And then he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And that's very fascinating. He could have said, as a witness of the resurrection. That's what I would have said if it was me. (laughs) I saw the resurrection of Christ. He doesn't even say, a witness of the glory that was revealed on the mountain of Transfiguration. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't refer to these great visions that he has. He says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Which hints to the fact that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ, the trial and betrayal. And it's a reminder that Peter, while he was witnessing the sufferings of Christ, was even adding to the sufferings of Christ. Because he betrayed Jesus three times. He was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He didn't intervene. And he was a miserable failure. I think Peter's being very humble here. He's not being way up here. I'm an elder too. And you know what? I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And I didn't do a very good job while I was watching him suffer. And then he says, but then he does get positive, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I'm a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. There are a couple of different ways to take this. Commentators are divided. Uh, Some commentators say that this is talking about the glory that Peter will enjoy later. R.C. Sproul said, Peter is a present partaker in the glory that will be revealed later. So in other words, he's partaking of the glory now that will be revealed fully at the second coming of Christ, perhaps. And I think scroll makes a good point because back in verse 14, it talked about if you suffer for the sake of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not will rest upon you later sometime in the future, but it's actually resting upon you right now. Right now, you're a partaker of the glory of God. And Peter right now is a partaker of the glory of God, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, even though it will be revealed more fully later. But this is what I think Peter is saying if I can put it all together. I'm a fellow elder as well, and I exhort you elders, To look forward to the glory that's revealed and realize that this glory rests upon weak sinners. Those who fail, those who stumble because God is gracious. And what a great way to start because no elder is perfect. And if any elder heard, judgment's going to begin at your church and it's going to begin with the leadership, every elder will be, oh, no! (laughs) Because we all know that we've fallen short. So I think this is a reminder... Cling to God's grace. And God really is gracious. Also, be prepared for this judgment by fulfilling your calling. By fulfilling your calling. Peter says, I exhort you, and then verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, or that is entrusted to your care, exercising oversight. And I've been talking about being... Stewards of God's grace, stewards of God's money, stewards of God's word. And this week I entitled the message, uh, Stewards of God's Flock. Uh, But specifically, we should talk about being shepherds of God's flock because that's what the passage says. And that word, shepherd, is very important. And really, it has to do with comprehensive care. Comprehensive care. Um, If you know anything about sheep, you know that they're pretty dumb animals, uh, which means that this uh, really isn't a compliment when we're called sheep. (laughs) Uh, But we are called sheep, but that's okay, because the Lord is our shepherd. Turn to Psalm 23, if you will. We won't go through every detail of that psalm, but I'd like to refresh your memory, hope you know Hopefully, you know Psalm 23 very well. Psalm 23, The Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, We would say I shall not lack because He takes care of everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, my wife pointed out to me many years ago. I never noticed that he makes me lie down in green pastures, not allows me to lie down in green pastures, not tells me to lie down in green, makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, Sheep have to be made to rest for the journey. He leads me beside still waters. That's important as well. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, sheep would just wander off anywhere. A matter of fact, they would wander right up over a cliff if you let them because they're so dumb. So the shepherd has to lead the sheep. And by the way, that's important for this analogy as well. Um, you lead sheep. You don't drive sheep. You drive cattle from behind. You know, and you have dogs that maybe bark at them, horses, and they go ahead. Maybe you've seen that. Uh, that's not how you... Uh, lead sheep. You are out in front of the sheep literally leading them and they follow you. Very different than with cattle. And then David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Maybe it should be translated your club and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, The club was for wild animals that would come. Shepherd would take that and attack the wild animals, a lion or a bear perhaps in David's case. And then the staff, that was for the sheep. They would get off track, you know, good, good solid nudge in the side, get back on track. And then many think the analogy changes from a shepherd to a banqueting host. Uh, but some think that even though it sounds like that, he's still talking about sheep. And I think that's a better understanding. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh sheep are fed out in the wilderness, even though they're surrounded by enemies, but that's okay because the shepherd is there. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That really should be translated. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Uh that Hebrew word is even translated persecute in some places. Uh, this is a relentless pursuit. And then he says, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's why I think we should see this this psalm as a whole, because the shepherd brings the sheep into God's house so that they can abide there forever. And that's what elders are called to do. Provide for the sheep. Uh, We could state it simply. uh, Elders are to lead, feed, and intercede on behalf of of the sheep all the days of their life so that they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we shouldn't overlook the fact that feeding the flock is so important. Uh, You'll recall in John 21, uh, three times, Jesus asked Peter, Do you love Me? Do you love Me? Do you love Me? And Jesus responded, If you love Me, feed My lambs Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my flock. Don't entertain the flock. Come up with good jokes for the flock. Feed my flock so that they are well nourished. And we should notice that it is God's flock. Uh, Elders or shepherds are responsible for the flock, but they are responsible to the owner, which is God. Um, Turn to Acts 20, if you will. In Acts 20... Uh, Paul is leaving the Ephesians. He's been with them for three years. And he has some final instructions for the elders there. And in verse 26, he says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of of all of you why for or because i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god so after three years paul can leave and he can say i'm innocent of your blood and i'm innocent of your blood for this reason for i did not shrink from declaring you to you the whole counsel of god I declared everything in God's words to you, not just those parts that you wanted to hear, the parts that you enjoyed about God's blessing, but I declared it all to you. And that also, by the way, being innocent of the blood of all peoples, a reference to Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel's called to be a watchman on the wall. And this is what we read in Ezekiel 33, 7 to 9. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have been delivered your soul. So Paul is thinking back. He is a prophet like Ezekiel. And if he declares the whole counsel of God that God tells him to declare, then he will be innocent of the blood of all people. But if he shrinks back from those difficult portions, then he will have to give an account for their blood. But Paul knows that he's declared it all, so he's innocent of their blood. And then in verse 28 he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. So primarily in caring for the flock is feeding the flock. There's more to it than that, but that is primary. Feed the flock. And notice, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and it's the flock that God purchased with His own blood, which is a reminder of the price that God paid for this flock. So lead, feed, and intercede on behalf of Of the flock, we could also add to that comfort, challenge, exhort, and encourage the flock. That's what God is calling you to do. And Peter goes on to a third point, and he says, be ready for judgment by being aware of possible weaknesses you may have as elders. Be aware of possible weaknesses. And Peter gives three pairs here. In verse 2, he says, "...shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight." And then he says, "...not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being example to the flock." So Peter basically points out three basic weaknesses that elders have. He says, "...be careful..." of sloth, money, and power. Don't be lazy. Don't do what you do because of money. And don't do what you do because you enjoy power. And then he gives the opposite. Not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly, joyfully, because you want to serve the people of God. By the way, elders are human beings and we do get tired from time to time. Okay, There's a difference between sloth or laziness and getting tired from time to time and needing rest or a sabbatical. Okay, Being an elder is hard work. And I was so thankful that when Larry took a sabbatical, he was honest in his letter and he just said, you know what, it's been emotionally draining and I need a little time off. So I think we should remember that elders are to work hard, but we should also remember it from a congregation that, you know what, sometimes these guys get tired. And I think if we can understand that from both sides, it would be very helpful. Um, I think shameful gain is self-explanatory. Uh, there's nothing wrong with elders being paid. Paul talks about that. Uh, elders who rule well are actually worthy of double honor. And then he talks about not domineering over those in your charge. Don't rule it over them. Jesus talked about this again and again. You're not like the Gentiles, but you're servants. Here specifically, Peter says, but be an example to the flock. And elders, when you hear that, don't you cringe? <laughs> don't you go, oh boy. Being an example to the flock. Um, that's scary. Because we all know that we fall short and we are not the examples we need to be. Nevertheless, that is the calling. J.I. Packer said this of preachers and it's very convicting. He says, How to communicate the reality of the God of Scripture across the temporal and cultural gap that separates our world from the world of the Bible has exercised many contemporary minds. It is not always noticed that God provides much of the answer to this perplexity in the person of the preacher who is called to be a living advertisement for the relevance and the power of what He proclaims. And I read that and I go, wow, who is sufficient for these things? We only are sufficient by God's grace. So Peter reminds Uh, the elders of possible weaknesses to watch out for them. And then he says, be ready for the judgment by looking ahead to your reward. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, which is a reminder that elders are only under shepherds. Okay, they're not the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Elders are just under shepherds. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Get ready for judgment, knowing that you will be rewarded. D.A. Carson says, Christians live in light of the end. Much of what we believe and much of the suffering we are prepared to endure derive their meaning from the prospect of vindication and resurrection. Without that prospect, Christianity does not make much sense. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And Peter says, Elders, shepherd the flock of God entrusted to your care knowing that a day is coming when the chief shepherd will appear and you will receive the crown of glory in other words work for your rewards now it's interesting some people are very uncomfortable with that I can still remember taking a class in seminary and this whole idea of rewards uh, came up and a student raised their hands and they said well we shouldn't really be working for rewards We should just do it because we love God. We should just do it because it's the right thing to do. And I thought, yeah, but everywhere in the Bible it tells us, do what you're called to do because God will reward you. Uh, When you pray, go in your closet, close your door so that no one sees you, because then your Father in Heaven will what? Reward you. And when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Because your Father who sees what is done will reward you. And when you fast, don't let everybody know you're fasting. Don't let everybody know how spiritual you are. Keep it to yourself. Wash your face so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I mean, everywhere. I mean, that's just a few passages. And I just read from Matthew 5. Everywhere, we're called to do what we do because we will be rewarded. If you think about it, it really takes great faith to be motivated by rewards. And it's one of the only ways in which you can please God. In Hebrews 11.6, the author says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. And anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So I think I could state this principle even stronger. The only way you can please God is by believing in faith that if you do what He's calling you to do, you're going to be rewarded in great ways. And think about it this way. It really does take faith, to be motivated by that kind of a promise. Because you might not see it in this life. You might just experience suffering in this life. So it really takes great faith to say, I'm going to do it, because even though my whole life on earth might be hard doing this ministry, a day is coming when that crown of glory is going to be placed on my head. And when that day comes, I'm not going to say, look at who I am. I'm going to take the crown off and I'm going to do what the 24 elders in the book of Revelation do. I'm going to bow down. I'm going to place it at the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to say, it's only because of the grace of God. And we'll remember St. Augustine's saying. And because we'll be in heaven, we'll even be able to say, Hey, I remember what you said. <laughs> Receiving rewards is God crowning His own works. But we're motivated by that. You've got to be motivated by that. Because ministry is brutal. Ministry is brutal. i going to be honest with you. As you're in ministry for a while, you see what happens to pastors. Pastors who are your good friends. One of my best friends from college was pastoring all kinds of conflict at his church. And he sensed that God was saying if you stay here, you're going to split the church. And he said, out of principle, because of my love for the body of Christ, I left. And I thought, they don't know what they're missing. Godly man, loves Jesus Christ, known him for years. A couple months ago, I was talking to another man about ministry. He was a pastor. Two years and four months. Doctrinal controversy in the church. Over whether or not you needed to be, whether or not repentance was necessary for believers. Part of a church, easy believes of them, didn't think repentance was necessary. He also thought he was going to divide the church. Just brutal. Two years and four months. Did them in. 16,000 pastors lead the ministry every year. Brutal. Brutal. What it does to wives, children. We got to keep our eye on the prize, as it were. We got to think about the glory. It's only by the grace of God that I go. In some ways, I can't even believe I'm still in ministry, to be honest with you. It's tough, but God is faithful. And that's the final exhortation given to the elders. Day is coming when you're going to stand before the Good Shepherd and give an account and He'll reward you. The last point really refers to the congregation. There's a switch here. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So you can help the elders be ready for this judgment that's coming. And the congregation really just has one thing to do. It's very simple. Uh, Submit to them. Submit to your leaders. You find the same thing in Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let me tell you, as a fellow elder, we are very sobered by that. As men who will give an account for the souls of those in the congregation. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, what you may have found interesting in verse 5, that it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Why does why focus on those who are younger? I think because those who are younger have a harder time submitting. Young people have a hard time with authority generally, but when you get older, I believe it gets it gets a little a little easier. So I think Peter is especially focusing on the young because it's especially difficult for them. and generally speaking, um, elders really are elder people. In other words, they are older people. Before I came to this church, I was involved uh, with a Korean church, and I was co-pastoring with another pastor, and uh, we were planning a church, very young church. And I was a pastor or excuse me, I was an elder with a couple other men, and I was in my early thirties, and I can still remember uh, one of the gentlemen in the first generation Korean church saying to me, you can't be an elder. You're too young. (laughs) And in that culture, they understood something that's missing from our American culture. They understood that elders are elder. (laughs) It it just seems like common sense. Uh, But they really did understand that. And I, I learned something about culture. And I learned being a part of that church right away that you respect older people. And it didn't take me too long to be a part of that church and to show up on a Sunday and walk in the hall and have an uh, older man come my way. It didn't take me very long to learn to say, Annyeonghaseyo, which meant good morning, and then bow. As a sign of reverence and respect. Now, we haven't had bowing in American culture. Uh, we used to have some things. When older people walked into a room, young people would stand up. He used to do that with women, too, in the sign of respect. A woman walks in a room, all the men men would stand up. If a woman was getting up from a table, the men would all stand up. Uh, We've lost that. We've lost that. But part of what Peter is saying here is the young are to show respect for the elders. Specifically here, it's the elders of the church. But in closing, let me just remind you of the one thing that Peter says here. Submit or subject yourself to the elders. Subject yourself to the elders. Submit to their authority. I think one of the reasons why many people are hesitant to become a member of a church is because they don't want to submit to authority. They want to be able to get up anytime they don't like it and then walk out the door. Peter says, you need to submit yourself to the authority. And you do that by becoming a member of a church. And you say, I'm submitting myself to the leadership of this church. Now, I know many of you are new to this church and there is a proper place uh, for evaluating a church, seeing if this is a place where we can become members. But after a while, you have to make a decision. You have to decide, is this going to be our home church? And God would say, it's time to become a member. It's time for you to obey Scripture and to submit yourself to the governing authority. And then use your spiritual gifts to serve in the body of Christ. And give your tithes and offerings to financially support the work of the ministry. Pray for your leaders Pray for the elders because ministry is tough. Help them. They're praying for you. You also pray for them. How often in Paul's epistles does he say, we're praying for you? And he says, and pray for us also. (laughs) On behalf of the elders, I want to say that we're praying for you. Uh, We have put together uh, what we're calling shepherd groups. Right now there's three elders. We've divided up uh, the membership of the church. Uh, we're praying for you. I try to go through that list every week. Pray for you, going through that list. And we're going to talk to you. And we want you to know that we're doing that because we have a serious responsibility. So when we come before you, please don't, don't be defensive. You know, a lot of times people are defensive. You know, we haven't seen you in church for a couple of weeks. Is everything okay? Um, we're doing that because we have a serious charge. A serious responsibility. And, and we take it seriously. And it's not easy to call people. If, if, if I can just be honest, it, it's not easy to pick up a phone and say, hey, I haven't seen you in church in two or three weeks because you, you know how it's going to be received. You know how uncomfortable that is. But if we if we can work together, I think we can really grow as a body. So we're, we're going to help you if you in turn can help us. I think uh, ministry can go can go forward in this church. Let's close. Father, we thank You for the clear instruction of Your Word. Father, I pray for us elders that You will strengthen us in the, the work that we have. And Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray that they will pray for us. And I pray that You help us to carry out our duties and I pray for the congregation that You help them to respond as You're calling them to respond. Uh, Father, we all have to stand before You someday. You're going to ask us elders if we shepherded the flock and You're going to ask the flock if they were subject to the shepherds. Father, help all of us to be faithful. In Jesus' name.